0: This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 105. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 60 through 63 and follow with a consideration of dreams deferred. Though this book is ostensibly by and about Yeshayahu, as I discussed in earlier episodes, most scholars are fairly confident that there's more than one Yeshayahu. We've discussed Deutero-Yeshayahu, and in the previous episode, we even went one further with Trito-Yeshayahu. And Trito-Yeshayahu lived at the time after the temple-destroying Babylonians were overrun by the Persians, and after the return to Zion, and even after the initial wave of resettlement. When the returnees had time to be in judea to rededicate the second temple and rebuild the walls of jerusalem and time to be disappointed bitterly when expectations of how it would be did not measure up to how it actually was how it would be was the outcome of decades of exile of all the hopes and dreams of a people yearning for home and it was not just nostalgia or anticipation It had a basis in theology and faith because the exile was a punishment for sin and the return a reward for faithfulness. Yeshayahu ben Amoz called Jerusalem a city of righteousness that would be redeemed with fairness and justice. And the people would be ruled once again by a son from the house of David who would be fair and just and protect the poor. And let's not even mention how the return would go over amongst the Gentiles. In short, everything was going to be just perfect. But chapter 60 presents a different take, an abject one. There is rampant poverty, and the sense of defeat and smallness, especially in regards to the second temple, which was markedly smaller and more humble than its predecessor, but especially when compared to the neighboring peoples. But don't give up. God will turn it around. All the people that mocked and derided will be brought low. All the poverty, simply gone. Quote, Instead of copper, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, copper. And instead stone, iron. And it's going to happen. Quote, I, the Lord, will speed it in due time. And that's a promise you can take to the bank. Chapter 61 sounds a lot like previous chapters about the servant of God. It drops into first person, drops some serious prophecy. But there are some key differences. The words servants of God do not appear anywhere. Nor is there any discussion about the trials and tribulations, which is usually the fate of the servant. No, no, no. This speaker, the prophet himself, is here to console. But who is he consoling? The whole nation or the part of the nation who refrains from sin and follows the righteous path? Verse 3 seems to suggest the latter. God will, quote, provide for the mourners in Zion to give them a turban instead of ashes, the festive ointment instead of mourning, a garment of splendor instead of a drooping spirit. They shall be called terebinths of victory, planted by the Lord for his glory. And the same applies to Jerusalem, whose future will be so bright. But it's kind of a humble brag, or more like a consoling put-down. Because in his description of how wondrous the future will be, one gets a sense of how truly bad it is in the present. Once called forsaken and desolate, once bullied by enemies who came to take her lunch money, quote, Nevermore will I give your new grain to your enemies for food, nor shall foreigners drink the new wine for which you have labored. Nevermore! Chapter 63 is a kind of call and response, or more like an ask and answer, with the anonymous asker, Is it the prophet? Asking and God answering. Quote, who is this coming from Edom, in crimson garments from Botsra? Who is this, majestic in attire, pressing forward in his great might? It is I it is who I contend, contend victoriously, victoriously powerful, powerful to, give to give triumph. Why is your clothing so red, your garments like his who treads grapes? I trod out I trod a vintage, out a vintage alone. alone, of the peoples the people, no man, was, no was, man, with man was with me. I trod them I trod down them in down my, down, anger, and my anger, trampled them trampled in, my in my rage. Their lifeblood, their lifeblood bespattered, bespattered my, garments, my garments, and all my clothing, all my clothing was, stained. was stained. And though God was full of rage and covered with the blood of splattered nations, and he could have channeled some more of that rage against those who totally deserved to be splattered because of their sinfulness, God was reminded of the good old days of smiting Egypt, and how he brought his people out of bondage and parted the sea with Moses and all, you know, all those good times. The chapter concludes the prayer of sorts, quote, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious height. Where is your zeal, your power, your yearning, and your love are being withheld from us? In other words, couldn't you do it again, Father? Couldn't you save us? Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. This episode's title is not a bad lip-reading shout-out to the Violent Femmes. It's actually a more highbrow reference. Not, Not even to the Lorraine Hansberry's 1959 play, but the poem that inspired it. A poem written in 1951 by Langston Hughes entitled Harlem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore? and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? Langston Hughes was one of the leading voices of the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s. He wrote novels, poems, reported for newspapers, he even wrote children's books. DuBose Hayward wrote in the New York Herald Tribune in 1926, quote, Langston Hughes, although only 24 years old, is already conspicuous in the group of Negro intellectuals who are dignifying Harlem with a genuine art life. It is, however, as an individual poet, not as a member of a new and interesting literary group, or as a spokesman for a race, that Langston Hughes must stand or fall. Always intensely subjective, passionate, keenly sensitive to beauty, and possessed of an unfaltering musical sense, Langston Hughes has given us a first book that marks the opening of a career well worth watching. Hughes represented the black community in his writing as he saw it, which sometimes was less than golden-hued. This understandably roused the ire of black critics who objected to his subject matter, use of dialect and, quote, parading all of our racial defects before the public. For a man of 24, Hughes experienced a lot. He had lived in six different American cities. He had already been A truck driver, a cook, a waiter, a college graduate, sailor, and doorman at a nightclub in Paris. He had visited Mexico, West Africa, the Azores, the Canary Islands, Holland, France, and Italy. He was a communist activist in the 1930s and traveled to Spain to cover the Spanish Civil War. The poem Harlem is part of Hughes's Montage of a Dream Deferred, a book-length poem comprised of 91 individually titled poems. It was intended to be read as a single, long poem. In the preface... Hughes wrote, quote, in terms of current Afro-American popular music and the sources from which it progressed, jazz, ragtime, swing, blues, boogie-woogie, and bebop, this poem on contemporary Harlem, like bebop, is marked by conflicting changes, sudden nuances, sharp and impudent interjections, broken rhythms, and passages sometimes in the manner of a jam session, sometimes the popular song, punctuated by the riffs, runs, breaks, and distortions of the music of a community in transition written five or so years after the end of world war ii hughes recounts how black soldiers who returned from the war where they fought and killed and bled for freedom only to discover that their service and sacrifice didn't mean anything The poem begins with the question, what happens to a dream deferred, and then begins to venture an answer, but each question intensifies the potential response. A raisin dries up in the sun quietly, a sore festers, then perhaps it hurts a little before it pops and runs, the rotten meat gives off a foul odor before crusting and sugaring over, each question increasing the frustration with the status quo, until... Harlem exploded into violence in 1964, as did Philadelphia, Jersey City, Patterson, New Jersey, Elizabeth, and Chicago. Watts burned in 1965. Newark burned in 1967, as did Detroit, and Harlem again. The 1967 list is rather long and gets even longer in 1968 after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th. And the list just goes on and on and on. There were outbursts of racial violence in 1969, 1970, 1971, 1972, and 1973. After the Boston busing crisis, which also exploded into violence between African Americans and white folks, there seemed to be a cooling. Riots broke out in New York as a result of the 1977 blackout, and out of the subsequent looting, hip-hop was born, so silver lining there, I guess. Violence erupted in Miami in 1980 after four Miami-Dade officers were acquitted of killing Arthur McDuffie. Fast forward to 1991, when in Crown Heights, a Hasidic motorist killed a black child in a car accident, mass violence ensued, and Yonkel Rosenbaum and another white man mistaken for a Hasid were murdered by an angry mob. Los Angeles exploded in 1992, after police officers were acquitted for beating Rodney King. The city burned for a week. I could go on into the rest of the 1990s and the aughts up to the present day, Oakland after the killing of Oscar Grant, Ferguson after the killing of Michael Brown, Milwaukee, Charlotte. But one could say instead that when looking at racial violence in the United States since the Birmingham riot of 1963, it would probably be easier to highlight the years that were race riot free. I think it's very sad. Which is to say that the default position for the United States is racial animus. Which brings us back to Langston Hughes and his burning question, what happens to a dream deferred? What happens to a man when every attempt to build is met with another man wielding a sledgehammer, or every hand he extends in friendship is slapped away? One can justifiably wonder how long that person could stand the frustration before exploding into a rage. In the case of Trito Yeshayahu, the returnees, the people who left the comforts of Babylon to come back to Zion, they were not thwarted as much by a man, but by a series of unfortunate events. They were not the target of unremitting discrimination and hatred from the Persian authorities. This cannot be understated. Yes, there was tension between peoples. We know from history about the tension between the returnees and the local Jews who never went into exile, as well as the tension between the returnees and the Samaritans who perceived themselves as Jews. But we also know about the persistent drought that decimated the planting and the harvest year after year, we also know that the Jerusalemites, until the wall was completed, lived in constant state of fear and insecurity. Even when the wall was completed, the city folks then moved to worry about their financial security, which delayed the construction of the second temple that eventually was completed only in 516 BC. But at every stage of the construction, there was the inevitable comparison to the first temple, which had been more lavish and ornate. Frustration and Disappointment were the order of the day but contrary to those black veterans who came back from world war ii or civil rights workers who were attacked by racist cops the ku klux klan or thwarted by the fbi the returnees did not have such a specific and i should add untouchable target for their rage their dream too was very specific and long promised and it too was deferred but not as acutely and not as viscerally and again not by a specific powerful group So they carried their persistent disappointment and frustration like an unwieldy, bulky sack and prayed for relief. For them, their dream deferred would dry up like a raisin in the sun and stop there. Because they either wisely or naively believed the words of the prophet who promised relief, who promised that those grapes would not dry into raisins, but quote, those who harvest it shall eat it and give praise to the Lord and those who gather it shall drink it in my sacred courts. And that, it seems, was enough. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out Tanakhcast, or like Tanakhcast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing really, but it will help other people find Tanakhcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast and pledge your shekels, either on a one time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and I encourage you to join us again in two weeks for Episode 106, when we conclude the book of Isaiah with chapters 64 through 66.